Welcome back, Gavin Riley, with you till one o'clock. This is On the Record on News Talk. Now, if you're from Cork or if you've been down on Leaside in the last few months, you will no doubt have seen the new pedestrian bridge which has been built in the city recently. It links Merchant's Quay to St. Patrick's Quay. Uh, earlier this year, Cork City Council decided to name that as the Mary Elms Bridge in honour of one of the rebel city's most overlooked figures, born in Cork in May 1908 and died in a French nursing home only in 2002, at the fine old age of 93, but very few people in her native city or beyond actually know the remarkable story of her life because during the years of the Second World War, Mary Elms was responsible for saving the lives of more than 200 Jewish children threatened by the Holocaust, hiding them and driving them to shelter at great risk to herself. And Donald Fallon is here, as always, to tell us all about her. Donald, good afternoon. Good How to are be you? here. I got a criticism about this slot that we, we never cover Cork people or Cork history, so right. let us right or wrong this right. week. Fair, fair enough. <laughs> let, let us rectify that great oversight because God forbid the people of Cork would feel the real slighted. capital the real capital it's, yeah, for me, the Mead is a real capital but they <laughs> never took our, our capital status away from us um, now in some ways naming this bridge uh, in honour of Mary Elm it actually it's part of a broader trend really. it is and the commemoration of women in a more widespread way in Irish society and you know, one or two women are arguably over commemorated Countess Markovich has three monuments uh, in Dublin You know, and other women are, are now starting okay, to come just, into the can we just, just stay, cut that one out <laughs> and we'll just, we'll just play that one over, over and over again that Constance Markovich is over commemorated <laughs> <laughs> historian says we're, we, we have venerated these people too much <laughs> we're seeing this real trend in, in, in recent times bridge names street names monuments are becoming more diverse you know mm. and, and in Dublin we have the, the Rosie Hackett Bridge uh, spanning the River Liffey in Cork mm. uh, a city of many famous sons is now honouring a, a daughter and it's astonishing really that this name is not more widely known Mary Ems I mean she's honoured by the World Holocaust Remembrance Centre uh, righteous among the nations the highest award that the, the state of Israel can, uh, can, can afford to non-Jews yeah. for their for their, their their role in kind of anti anti Holocaust activism, and our story is one of real tremendous personal bravery. Um, now it might sound kind of corny or like a, a reflex thing to describe her as Ireland's version of Oscar Schindler, but that it probably is a fair summary. Yeah, isn't it? and uh, I mean in terms of Oscar Schindler, it's worth saying that name is widely known to us because of popular culture. But there were people in their thousands across frontiers who acted in the very same way. There were thousands of Oscar Schindlers, mm. and sometimes. These networks of people were interconnected. Sometimes they worked together. More often than not, actually, though, it was, it was just tremendous personal bravery. If you're doing something like what Mary Elms was doing, you know, as few people as possible around mm. you knew what you were doing. And there were reasons for that. Prison, torture, even the guillotine on occasion yeah. was the, you know, the fascist punishment for the kind of behaviour that Mary Elms was up to. So, so tell us about Mary Elms' background then. She was, uh, her beginnings were actually quite middle class, were they? Yeah, I mean, she's a daughter of a pharmacist. She studies in Trinity College Dublin, French uh, and Spanish. And her academic star shone bright enough that she actually got a, a, a scholarship to do international relations mm. abroad and then in the 1930s I suppose this move abroad brings this woman into very interesting yeah, interesting it, it, terrain I imagine doing international relations at Trinity <laughs> at that time is, is quite yeah, the eye opener yeah. International relations in the 1930s at a time when international relations themselves seemed destined for the dustbin of history yeah. and you know in Spain you had the overthrow uh, of the Spanish Republic the coup led by General Franco and the chaos that ensued there was almost without precedent and people that were loyal to the Spanish Republic you know in places like Bilbao mm. in Barcelona find themselves on the move, they're basically refugees, and with the aerial bombardment of the Luftwaffe, I mean essentially, the Spanish Civil War is one great big training course for yeah. fascism and what's coming in the Second World War. You know, you, you have the movement of people in their thousands, and to this young, you know, conscious woman who's studying international relations, she feels an obligation to go there, yeah, and she did. Which is a fascinating obligation, given that there is so much chaos going on there, that you, you could well understand if people said, I have sympathy for the Spanish Republic, but I'm mm. not going into that war zone, and, and, and yet have, off she went. To have sympathy for the Spanish Republic in Ireland would have made you quite a 
unusual. I mean, the, the, the largest church collections since the days of Daniel O'Connell happened for Franco. I mean, but the, public, the public perception in Ireland was that this was a war on Catholicism. Uh, I mean, we, 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 we read history backwards sometimes and we think about, you know, Viva la Quinta Brigada. Sorry, so, so the Irish perception was that Franco was some sort of a, like a defender the, of the faith? The, the great defender of faith. The great defender of faith. And I mean, when you look at the numbers that went out to fight in the Spanish Civil War from Ireland, around 300 men fought with the International Brigades, but multiples of that would go out with the blue shirts. I now, didn't realise that the imbalance was that much. And you know, like, there's always people on both sides. Tommy Tiernan has a great routine about how you, you can go to any battlefield in the world <laughs> and there'd be a Longford fella on one side and a Westmead fella on the other and they're exchanging grievances over club hurling or something. But no, no, I didn't realise that we were quite so heavily yeah, weighted and, and on the Franco still, side. This is a debate that's still going on. I mean, in the Irish Times this week, there was a, a, around the letters pages about whether or not the blue shirts were fascists. I'm not entirely sure they were, but the perception in Ireland, you know, among Catholics was yeah. that the church in Spain was, was under siege. So this young Mary Elms, who volunteers with an ambulance unit in Spain, works directly with kind of Republican children that are affected by the raging conflict. And her biographer, Claude Finn, has written about how she was just greatly moved by that kind of suffering. And a co-worker of hers just really beautifully puts it in words and says, when one sees so many cold, ragged, dirty, homeless orphans, one realises that there are many things worse than death. And their hospital in Alicante eventually abandoned because of the, the heavy aerial bombardment mm. of the Luftwaffe. And in the aftermath of the war, a doctor who worked beside Mary Ems, he correctly said, as far as I know, the Germans learned one lesson only in Spain, how to destroy. And of course then, understandably, and as you mentioned, many people then having to flee Spain because of the cause of Republican then end up going to the nearest bastion of republicanism, which is France. Absolutely. And some of these Spanish Republican refugees from France, I mean, they later end up in the in the French resistance. The first tank that rolls into Paris uh, when the city is liberated is full of Spanish communists. So there's this strange movement of kind of Spanish Republicans yeah. and leftists so into France. Enemies, enemies there, so there? what happens to the kids? You know, in southwest France, these camps emerge full of Spanish, Basque, Catalan kids, mm. and it's women like Mary Elms uh, that are caring for them. But, but fascism the, follows. Fascism follows and it creeps across across national borders and the nightmare for these kids really repeats itself again when France falls and what emerges in France the state you know it's not quite a fascist state Vichy France but it's a collaborator mm. and it's no safe it's space it's one of those kind of puppet administrations absolutely yeah. absolutely the, Ger- the Germans will let you rule yourselves once you rule on German lines and it's no safe place for Jewish children and Elms you know just as she'd smuggled the children of Spanish Republicans across frontiers now finds a similar task before her so tell us then how about she goes uh, through the mechanics of actually trying to break children out of the camps is there any great sophistication to it the numbers are extraordinary. One camp in southern France, 2,251 Jewish people, including 110 children, are moved from there to Auschwitz, where they're, where they're, where they're later murdered. Mm. And that camp had a capacity for some 8,000 people and was overcrowded to a very dangerous extent. So she realises when these people are being moved, you know, the, the moment when you can snatch, if you will, mm. is as they're being put on trains. And on the 11th of August 1942, she and others in her network move into action and they literally just grab 11 children before they can be transported to Auschwitz. They smuggle them in the boots of cars and just drive and it's into that Republican blunt. territory. There's, there's no bigger sort of uh, great organisation no. or chicanery to it. It's as simple no, as it's, just it's, grab them while they're in transit. You know, opportunities are for those that seize them and they know that when these children are being moved, when they're waiting to board trains, that is the moment when you strike. So what happens to her as a result of all of Eventually, that? Eventually, this thing unravels around her and she's ca- she's captured by the fascist authorities. And there's a brilliant website called herstory.ie, very clever name, mm. which is kind of a brilliant attempt to put Irish women back into historical consciousness. And they write that she was jailed for six months by the Gestapo. And she got off relatively lightly, you could say. Uh, and when she was grilled on it later, <laughs> very nonchalant, she'd say, well, we all experienced inconveniences in those days, didn't we? So, six <laughs> so months so in prison she, by the so Gestapo. So she was definitely Irish anyway. That, uh, she did that Irish mammyism thing of talking down all of the 
on your own contribution, absolutely. But the prison where she was kept in Paris was just full of political prisoners. I mean, the the Free French Forces, the SOE, British soldiers that were kind of operating secretly in clandestine networks in France. And being a woman in there counted for very little. I mean, Mm. another woman, Suzanne Spack, a member of the resistance, was murdered there literally weeks before the liberation of Paris and only in her 30s. Mm. So, you know, the fact that you were a woman didn't necessarily guarantee uh, you'd survive. So you mentioned that uh, Miriam's story isn't widely known by a lot of people. And part of that is because, Mm. as you mentioned, she tended to play down her own contribution to the point where after the war and after everything had, had settled down she didn't speak very much about what she'd been she up to. She said remarkably little about everything that had happened. Married, had two children, Patrick and, and Caroline uh, and she was later awarded the, the Legion of Honour which is the highest civilian award in France mm. and she refused to accept it. And you know her line publicly always was that she did what any decent person would do but you know, no matter how decent you are this is a question of bravery uh, and not decency. Mm. And then 11 years after her death she was recognised this great award Righteous Among the Nations which is bestowed on those who assisted Jewish children uh, during the, the Holocaust. She was actually nominated by a child she'd helped uh, to flee to safety mm. and her children accepted it uh, on her behalf. The only Irish person to ever receive wow. uh, that accolade which is a, which is high praise indeed. Which, which is an amazing honour uh, and of course this uh, with, with everything that's going on in the world it might be of course be a fitting time for Cork City Council and the rest of the country yeah. to remember Look, her. history never repeats itself. Sometimes it, sometimes it rhymes. You know, If you told me there'd be people Zeke Heiling on the streets of Dublin 10 years ago I wouldn't have believed you yeah. but you know, these, these things go around and there's a lot to be learned you know, from the story of people like Mary Elms against the backdrop the re-emergence of, of, of fascist thinking everywhere but we should also ask ourselves a very important question how in the name of God did someone like this become a forgotten figure yeah, you know, yeah, and yeah. for Cork to honour her as they have this year with the bridge I think that goes some way towards changing that so think of her you know, when you cross it It certainly does and fair play to Cork City Council for, for taking that move to try and commemorate her and uh, Donald thank you as ever for bringing us up to speed in that amazing story of Mary Elms that is all we've got time for today uh, by the way Donald Fallon is an author and historian and he's the author of the Come Here To Me blog and books uh, volumes 1 and 2 of which are available in all good bookshops